Well, we are in Exodus 19 to 20 today. And so the story so far is that, um, if, if, we, if we just kind of, kind of rewind a little bit into, into uh, Genesis, and the story of Joseph, Joseph ends up being uh, sold into slavery. Joseph is the son of Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. All of these are connected stories that lead to this key moment where Israel, uh, as, as a nation, as a people, as a family, finds themselves in slavery in Egypt. Exodus starts with the fact that, you know, uh, Joseph had brought great, great blessing to Egypt. He, he basically, uh, through God's revelation and ability, helped save the world at the time. But a new pharaoh arises in the, in the land who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know that history, even though, you know, they, you know, you go to Egypt and they've got like monuments to all these major historical things. Well, they kind of forgot to put this one on the wall of a tomb or something. Anyway, be that as it may, a new pharaoh arises and doesn't know, and they see this group of people that aren't their people living in their land, and so they say, hey, well, Let's, uh, let's use this great workforce. <laughs> so they put them to work, and for the next 400 years, Israel is enslaved. 400 years of slavery. And then the people are crying out to God from their slavery. Pharaoh's tried everything to, to control the people, to, to keep them from, from propagating, to keep them subservient. And they're crying out to God, and God then remembers, it says in, in, uh, in Exodus chapter 2, and this is, it's all in God's timing, but he chooses this moment to act, and he calls Moses to himself at, at, at this mountain on Horeb and Sinai Peninsula. We don't know exactly where it is, uh, but God calls Moses to himself and says, you're going to go and you're going to uh, lead my people Israel out of Egypt. And when you do, this is going to be the sign for you that I have sent you when you come out, when I bring you out of Egypt, you're going to worship God on this mountain. The same mountain where the burning bush happened is the same mountain that you're going to worship God at. And now we're there. Exodus 19. Now, this is a very important introduction to what I believe is the center and the heart of the Pentateuch. The Sinai experience. It's about 10 to 12 months of calendar time but it takes up one-third of the five books of Moses. It starts in Exodus 19, and they finally leave in Numbers chapter 10. 68 chapters proceed, and 58 chapters follow. We have 60 chapters just with 10 months of time. It's kind of like everything hits slow motion here, or real time. We're not jumping from scene to scene to scene. You know, you have Abraham, Abraham's called, and then, whoa, well, 25 years later, and you have, oh, and, and Israel's in Egypt, and they're put into slavery, and woof, 400 years later. You know, there's, there's not these huge time gaps. This is the center. This is the heart of the Pentateuch. This is the moment that everything from Genesis 1 has been building towards. And when I taught Pentateuch as a college course, I started in Exodus 19. 
because I felt that unless you get this as the center and the heart and God wanting to be with his people, you can't understand what came before or what comes after. And when we look at this too, there's, there's an, a very important thing here for us. Passover was important. The Exodus was important. It was foundational for Israel's identity. But it was an event and a moment, and there was more. The salvation moment was important, but there was more. Pentecost. And we think of Pentecost, we think of the coming of the Holy Spirit, but Pentecost in Jewish tradition is the giving of the Ten Commandments from the, the, at Mount Sinai. Forty, this, this same time period between the resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit, the uh, uh, leaving of, uh, of Egypt and the announcement of the, the covenant moment for God's people happens in Exodus 19 to 20, and it's crucial. Because this is where God instructs his people, how are you going to live as my priestly kingdom in this world? It's central because it's about the mission of God that in and through the lives of his people, he would bring blessing to all. And so I want us to read actually a chunk today. I'm not going to have it up on the screen. Uh, and we're going to then duck into, into uh, three shorter sections. And... and, and if, if you want to stand for this, it's fine, but I, just so you know, I'm reading Exodus 19 to chapter 20, verse 21. So hear the word of the Lord. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain nor touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot whatever beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain and the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day and don't go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the, like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. And warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no gods, no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall, you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. The starting point, the starting point to walking with God and being his people is that he starts it. The starting point is God and the starting point is his love for us the first point we want to look at today is that God gave the law to show his love. To show his love. 
The starting point to walking in relationship with God is to know deeply that God loves you. That God loves you. And he has done the work to provide and to pursue and deliver you for his glory. And this is so important. Look at some of these key verses again. Exodus 19, 3-6 and 21-2. And just a few phrases out of here that, 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 that really cement this and that we need to hear. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Israel's freedom was not won by their initiative or their obedience. God worked, God rescued, God provided salvation. They had no obligation yet. See, God's law does not secure God's love. God's love initiates the relationship and then comes the way to live out that relationship. But God loves first and saves first. The Gospel Project notes this, God made his covenant with the Israelites by giving them his law, expecting their obedience to it. But we cannot miss the fact that God's grace preceded his law and both reflect his love. God's love is first, it's primary, it's foundational, and should motivate obedience. We obey and follow him because of his love for us, 1 John 4, 14. We love because he first loved us. Now, something else to notice here, you know, he, he goes on to say, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, a special costly possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And what God's saying here is, I could have chosen anyone, but I chose you. You know, why did God choose Israel? Because they were awesome? Because they were great? No, go into Deuteronomy and it's like, God chose you because of his love for you and his, his commitment to the covenant with Abraham. And it's not because you're great and it's not because you're perfect and it's not because you do things right. It's actually, you're a, you're a hot mess, the lot of you. But I love you and I'm committed to you, even in your brokenness and your disobedience. Grace, favor, love, constantly poured out. God gave the law to show his love and then through his relationship with Israel, he would reveal himself to the world. But he was only going to do that through relationship with his people. Abraham, I'm, I'm going to take you, I'm going to make you a great nation and all the nations of earth will be blessed through you. It's me, my chosen people, and blessing the world. That's how God works. That's how he shows his love. When we get into the Ten Commandments, well, I, I think, just to, to, total aside here, I think God loves hiking. Read Exodus 19 and look at how many times, okay, Moses, come up to the mountain. Okay, I'm here. Go down. Okay. Okay, come back. Oh, go down. Oh, bring Aaron with you this time. Okay, fine. And then, you know, and it's like, I, I count at least three times. 
up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain. And this is like within a three-day period. And Moses is what, 80 years old at this point? He's in pretty good shape. I don't know how big the mountain is. Anyway, that's rabbit trail. The, the, the Ten Commandments, these ten words, these foundational statements that God makes, they're broken into two basic sections. How to love God, how to love people. First of all, God gave the law to show how to love him. It's unclear from the, the, the text, really, where, whether Moses is speaking these words to Israel after he received them for God, or if, or if everyone is hearing this directly. Notice at the end of chapter 19, last verse, so Moses went down to the people and told them, and God spoke. So where is Moses? He's, he's down the mountain talking to the people. Maybe this, is, maybe this is Moses speaking, but Deuteronomy 5, however, seems to clarify this, that Moses was not up the mountain, but God was speaking, and, and in Deuteronomy 5, Moses says, you heard the voice of God when he declared these commands to you. Obviously, they were terrified and said, hey, you go and get the law, we don't want to hear God again. God is speaking, and all the people are hearing the word of God from the mountain. Now let's not miss that, that the first two verses, because the commands start in verse 3, but the first two verses of chapter 20, uh, verses 1 and 2, set the stage. They establish the relational nature for everything that is to follow. I am the Savior, says God. I am your Savior. Therefore, because of my saving work in your life, because I have brought you to myself, here's how we're going to live together. If we could wrap this all up into, in, in, into kind of one, one theme, God is saying in these first commands, I want your undivided heart. Undiluted worship of the God who set you free. Now what's the greatest commandment? Jesus was asked. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Nothing is to come between you and God. No love can be greater in our hearts. Idolatry is, some, is loving something or someone more than God himself. And nothing in this world can represent the love of God, the person of God, the, the walking with God, the saving work of God. Nothing can represent that. And it's not, this is not just about pictures and statues, but God is living, he is active, he is mobile, he is dynamic, he is relational, he is not controllable or tameable. Idolatry is ultimately any attempt to control the relationship you have with God. It's exerting my authority over the sovereignty of God. That's what idolatry ultimately is. You see, God is not interested in religious routine, but dynamic relationship with his people, and he settles for nothing less. See, even when Israel was doing all the stuff, like, okay, God told us to do all these sacrifices and to do this and this and this, at one point, God says in Isaiah, stop it, just stop it. I don't want your sacrifices 
I don't, I, don't want the, I don't want you to come to my temple with all of your religious routine stuff if I don't have your heart. If I don't have your love. If, we're not, if you're not coming to me out of a relationship of love, I don't want your worship. God gives his law to show us how to love him, not have a religious routine. And that's what this first half of the Ten Commandments is all about in in chapter 20, verses 3 to 8. The first half is all focused on our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commands. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, or you, should, you, you don't use the name of the Lord for, for empty things. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's amazing. The first positive command here is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now we looked at this last week a little bit because when, when God gave the manna, God said, okay, go out and collect it on the first six days. Uh, on the sixth day, uh, you, you'll gather and when you prepare it, you'll find you have twice as much uh, for the next day. And the next day, don't go out to gather because that's a Sabbath and it's holy and it's my gift to you. Sabbath is a gift. See, because God wants his people to be in relationship with him and to enter his rest and experience his rest. The first positive command. That's also one of the longest commandments. It's the hinge point between loving God and loving others. The same as it's kind of the hinge point in the creation stories between Genesis 1 and 2. Sabbath is the central hinge point. See, because ultimately, Sabbath is about trust and relationship, not about work. It's about celebrating relationship and loving God. You know, I, I just kind of discovered this yesterday as I was doing some reading, and it was, it was that this was new information for me. So I was like, wow, that's really fascinating. I hadn't seen this before. In Genesis chapter 1, humanity is created last. What is the first thing humanity does in Genesis 1? Sabbath. They rest with God. God created humanity in his image and after his likeness, and God saw that it was very good. End of day six, what's day seven? Rest. God didn't create us to work, he created us to be in relationship with himself in his rest. Sabbath was the very first experience humanity had. It's a gift. The first experience humanity has is God saying, rest with me, be with me. For Israel, this is so important because for 400 years, it's been work, 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 work. It's what defined their existence. It's, It's what defined how they functioned as 
as a people, right? They had nothing to do but work and it was forced labor. And God says, you have to enter my rest and stop your striving and working. And it was, their existence was defined by work and now their existence was defined by God's love. Sabbath is the longest commandment and it's the hinge point. It's the center between loving God and loving others. And Sabbath is an expression of God's love for us. And when we enter that Sabbath rest, and this is something we all have to learn, how to shut off the noise of our world and just be with God and with one another. And we show our love and our trust in him. God gave the law to show how to love him. But God also gave the law to show us how to love one another. The second half of the Big Ten is loving one another. Remember, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no command greater than these in all of Scripture, Jesus said. And so we see this in the Ten Commandments. Love God, love others. You know, and, and I had this question as I looked at this, I said, why does God include these here? Why, why not just save it for later? You know, <clears throat> it should just be, it's, it's about relationship with God and that's, you know, that's, that's it. And later we can talk about, you know, people. <clears throat> but let's remember in Genesis chapter two, God said it's not good for a human to be alone. You see, when we walk out and we live into this loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, it produces in us a love for what God loves and God loves his people. God's love produces a love for others. God's love produces in us a capacity to love and respect one another. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers. Let's look at that. Chapter 20, verses 12 to 17. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, it doesn't matter who they are. It matters how you treat them and what your attitude is towards others. We honor God in how we show concern for the interests of others. Paul says that in Philippians, right? In chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. Have the same mind that Jesus Christ had. Don't consider yourself more highly than you ought. Romans chapter 12. But think of yourself with sober judgment. Put others first. In the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus addressed a number of these commands, didn't he? Murder, adultery came first when he addressed these things. And and Jesus took what could be, we could follow those things externally, right? No problem. Don't murder? Okay, like, I'm, I'm good. Committing adultery? Good, I'm fine. Not stealing? Not bearing false witness? Coveting? We're getting a little closer to home there, maybe. But all of these are external things that are pretty easy for most people to live out. 
But Jesus took what can be done externally and goes to the root issue of each of these, which is a heart condition. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, murder comes from anger and hate. And if you're angry and hateful towards your brother, you're guilty of murder. Adultery comes from lust and broken relationships. Theft comes from a lack of trusting God's provision. False witness comes from pride and arrogance. Coveting comes from wanting to be, to be more than what we are and serving money and possessions more than God. Ultimately, according to Jesus, we fail to keep the commandments because it's a heart issue, it's an attitude issue. The realities are internal before they're external. And so the guilt in relation to these commands comes before the act. So if you look over that, those commands, these ways of honoring and loving one another, and you look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and even what Paul says in when he contrasts the fruit of the sinful nature versus the fruit of the Spirit, you'll see that your anger and your harsh words aren't understandable or warranted. They're sinful. Your pornography, your masturbation addiction isn't justifiable. Your desire for stuff you can't afford isn't just hopeful wishing and dreaming. Your attitudes and words that question people's character isn't, well, I'm just saying that's who they are. The problem is always a lack of love for God and for God's love to radically transform our hearts and minds so we can love others. That's where the real problem is. We don't understand how deeply we're loved and so we cannot deeply love others. You see, most of us don't see the problem with our sinful behaviors because we don't see the damage they cause in the, our lives, the lives of others, and how it breaks the heart of God. Because all of this is found ultimately in a heart that doesn't really know how loved you are. This is why God started the whole conversation with you have seen what I have done to the Egyptians, to your captors, your oppressors, your masters. I have brought you to myself. I bore you on eagle's wings. I set you free. I brought you salvation. I have loved you. And I know you by name. Jesus Christ defeated sin and death, and in his death and resurrection, he brings freedom from our captors, our oppressors, and our masters. He can heal and restore our brokenness and restore the beauty and overwhelm us with his joy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I have come so that your joy might be full. I bore you on eagle's wings. You were absolutely incapable of coming to me, so I picked you up and I brought you to myself. Isaiah 43, 1, But now thus the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Why does Jesus answer the question of the greatest commandment the way he does? Because when we love God completely, he changes how we love others. Because in loving God completely, we come to know how completely he loves us. 
Love for God, love for one another. These have the source and their foundation in God's love for us. It's inseparable. 1 John chapter 4, 7-12 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected or made manifest in us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It all comes down to that. Three questions as we think about application on this for the head. How might obedience to God's commandments put believers at odds with the world? With all I've said, this may come across a little differently. Obedience out of love received and love given is radically different than obedience out of duty or obligation. Try this one on. You might have to think about this for a while. Satan is completely happy with our obedience if it is driven by duty and obligation because there is no joy, no relationship involved. There is no love. And where there is no love, there is no God. Obedience driven by duty and obligation is joyless, and shallow, and not what God wants. See, why we desire to walk in obedience to God is crucial. John 15, 9 to 11. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The, the invitation to abide in Jesus' love comes from Jesus himself having abided in the Father's love. Don't miss this. Jesus' love for us comes from God's, the Father's love for him. And his capacity to love came from the knowledge of how deeply he was loved by the Father and walked with him. And the, and the obedience thing is in response to, in relationship to, and flows out of the love relationship. They go together. They're inseparable. You can't have love without obedience, and you can't have obedience without love. And what was Jesus' commandment that he wanted his followers to follow at this point? Jesus said, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. How much has Jesus loved you? Our love for one another and our obedience to the command of Christ, our capacity to love one another, comes from a knowledge of being deeply, deeply loved by Jesus. 
So how does our obedience to God's command put us at odds with the world? Well, we have a completely different foundation and motive. God's love for us in Christ. It's not our moralism, it's not our theology, it's not our politics, it's our capacity to love like Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. When we walk in obedience to God's commands, we demonstrate our love for God because he so loved us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now love one another as I have loved you. Connect the dots going forward and backwards. That's how radical our love should be. By this will all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. It all comes back to this. The heart. What are some ways God's commandments are revealing sin in your life? Repent and prayer now. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount raised the bar. It's no longer good enough to just not murder or not commit adultery, not covet and not bear false witness. The issue is a heart issue. It's an attitude issue. It's words. There's interior problems before there's exterior sin. God didn't give us his law to prove our goodness or our ability to get it right most of the time. Rather, God graciously gave us his law to reveal our sin and lead us toward repentance. What is right? So what is hindering your ability to love others? What is blocking your ability to live with abundant joy that Jesus promised? See, repentance is about turning to God, remember. He's the God who sees you, who knows you, who knows your struggles, your failures, and loves you deeply. Turning to God isn't turning to a taskmaster who can never be pleased. Repentance is turning to the one who knows your deepest pains and struggles and failures and carries you to himself on eagle's wings. Repentance is turning from sinful behavior, but it is turning toward a desperately loving God. So how will you live differently so that your words and actions point to the glory of the Lord who loves us and gave himself for us? I think this is something you will have to answer for yourself and work through this question throughout this week. God gave his law to show us his love. God gave his law to show us how to love him. And God gave his law to show us how to love one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray with the Apostle Paul that you would help us to understand how high and deep and wide and long is the love that you have for us. And that you would help us know the love that you have for us that is unknowable so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, would you challenge our hearts 
with your amazing love. Would you show us a glimpse of how desperately you love us? At the moment humanity sinned, the first words out of your mouth are, where are you? I'm looking for you. I am seeking you. I am calling out to you. Come to me. Lord, if there's anyone here who just needs to take some time and quiet repentance and turn over those angry words, lustful thoughts, covetousness, and dissatisfaction with life. Lord, I pray that we would turn to you, turn our hearts to you, and repent of those things and embrace the fact that you love us. You've supplied all of our needs. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've sent your spirit to live in our hearts, and you've replaced the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. Heart that can feel. Heart that can love. Now, Lord, I know that there's a lot that needs to happen in my own heart and life. And it's a journey. It's a journey to learn how deeply you love us and to walk in relationship with you and then learn how to love others as you love me. And so, Lord, go with us in our week. Help us to know that we are deeply loved so that we may in turn deeply love others. In Jesus' name, amen. A stand benediction is from 1 John chapter 4, 13 to 19. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Amen. Have a great week. Know that you're loved and love others.